Welcome to Indo-Pacific Affairs, a podcast devoted to tackling the wicked problems facing policymakers, academicians, military leaders, and others in the Indo-Pacific region. Affiliated with Air University's Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs, the Consortium of Indo-Pacific Researchers, and the Air Command and Staff College's eSchool, the podcast features interviews with the top names in academia, government, and think tanks from around the region. This is Lieutenant Colonel Z. Miller. I am a faculty member at the Global College of Professional Military Education. Today, we will be discussing China-Africa relations with Dr. Charles Thomas. Dr. Thomas is an Associate Professor of Strategy and Security Studies at the Global College of PME here at Air University. He received his Master's and PhD in African History from the University of Texas at Austin. He is also a founding member and managing editor of the Journal of African Military History. Prior to arriving in Maxwell, he taught in the Department of History at the United States Military Academy. His interests lie largely in African military history and particularly in post-colonial African military structures and conflicts. He is currently working on a book describing the evolution and operations of the Tanzania People's Defense Force. So good morning, Dr. Thomas. So wonderful to have you here today. Let's begin by reviewing some statistics about Africa. This is a vast continent made up of 54 countries, has a population of roughly 1.3 billion people, and set to double by 2050, and also composed of many different cultures and societies. So from a historical perspective, when did China-Africa relations begin to develop? Thank you very much, Lieutenant Colonel Miller. These have largely evolved from their beginnings, but to start at the beginning, it really sort of comes to the fore in in the early 1950s and, and bleeds into the 1960s. The Chinese communists had won the Chinese Civil War, um, they had forced the Kuomintang, uh, although I'm probably mispronouncing that, uh, apologies to the listeners, um, they had, had forced uh, uh, Chiang Kai-shek's government to Taiwan, where it proclaimed the Republic of China, as opposed to Mao's communist government on the mainland, and, and Chiang Kai-shek's government was largely the one recognized. The communists, uh, beginning in 1949, were roughly diplomatically isolated, um, with very few sort of connections to the larger sort of global governance. And one of the few sort of friends they had, although uh, I think the term the kids nowadays would use would be frenemies, um, was the Soviet Union, who had who saw them as natural allies due to sort of due to their Marxist governments, but. There was some chafing there. There tensions had begun even during the Chinese Civil War and before, where the Russian-led uh, Comintern often really tried to control the Chinese Communist Party. This continued basically through the Long March, but eventually Mao's faction of the Chinese Communist Party sort of won their own control and and really sort of had tensions from then on with the death of Stalin. And the the rise of Nikita Khrushchev and his process, his pro, his program of destalinization, this continued to cause these deep, deep tensions, and eventually what would be called the called the Sino-Soviet split. Mao's government didn't really like sort of what they saw as as this sort of stripping away of of sort of Stalin's legacy, and with this split, it left them more isolated than ever. 
But the sort of global political currents were already shifting by that point. Following World War II, many of sort of the colonized regions of the globe um, began gaining their independence. In the post-war order, countries such as Britain, France, the Netherlands, even uh, uh, Belgium and the like, began having to release their colonial holdings, and, and these governments began finding their independence. But they were finding their independence right as the global Cold War really was sort of whirring in, um, whirling into gear. And this left them in a, in a very uncomfortable situation, sort of stuck between what looked to be two large ideological blocks anchored by the, 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 the two superpowers, the United States and the Soviet Union. And most didn't necessarily want to be stuck there. So beginning in 1955, there was uh, what became known as the Bandung Conference in Indonesia, where these countries got together and discussed their future of trying to stay outside of a bipolar world. They formed what would be called, be called the non-aligned movement, um, countries that wanted to sort of form their own counterweight block of nations. And China was present there. They did not necessarily want to be lashed to the Soviet Union or the Comintern in terms of their foreign policy, in terms of sort of their global outlook. And they made common cause with many of these decolonizing countries. They reached out and used what was a very effective narrative of they too understood what it was like to exist under a colonial system, beginning with the treaty ports in uh, following the opium wars in the mid-19th century, through essentially these sort of um, external laws that Europeans existed under in China. They saw this as very humiliating and used this to, to make kind of common cause and, and spin a common tale with many of these, these decolonizing countries and, and really made some strong alliances, including with the, the few decolonized or decolonizing at that point African states, um, Gold Coast, shortly to become Ghana, Libya, Egypt, and the, uh, and the like. And at this point, these relations were far more built with a strategic sort of diplomatic conception behind it. They wanted recognition. They wanted connections with the larger world. They wanted to, if they could, reform the system that gave recognition to, well, Chiang Kai-shek's government in, uh, in exile in Taiwan. And this, as beginning in the 1960s, as more and more African nations decolonized, China really made certain to establish strong relations with them using this same sort of narrative of, hey, we understand where you're coming out of. We want to help be a guide to building, you know, uh, stronger institutions in your country. We are here to help. And this really built them a strong diplomatic base so that by 19, I believe it's 1971, um, they're actually able to force a vote at the United Nations um, that, that transfers diplomatic rec recognition, United Nations recognition of the government of China from Chiang Kai-shek's government to the People's Republic of China. And so this really is these early relations, although there is some economic and some military connections, and I'm certain we'll discuss those, really is built much more towards sort of this larger global diplomatic political structure. And they, they do it very well. It actually alarms a lot of Western observers who begin, especially after the PRC is recognized in 71, begin sort of producing alarmist works talking about China's Africa revolution, that they're going to sort of overturn all of these, these governments in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And it really is sort of a domino theory sort of thing. But as I had mentioned, those, those eventually sort of change with, this, this, uh, with sort of this diplomatic and political recognition achieved. And with China's economy growing, 
the sort of these strategic interests shift a little bit from sort of diplomatic recognition, although those diplomatic connections still obviously are important, to more the economic needs of a growing Chinese economy. And in that case, what, what effectively happens is in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, the Chinese economy has recovered from some of the earlier sort of catastrophes that have happened, the Great Leap Forward and things like that. And, uh, and really now their, their economy is growing at a fairly good pace. But much as we see in, in other parts of the world, when your economy is growing at a, a fairly good pace, you both need sources for materials to produce and you need markets to sell the, the, sell the products that you're producing. And at this point, uh, China begins what it's called the, 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 the going out policy of trying to go out and establish sort of more economic connections. And this is the first sort of step towards building these economic relations with Africa, but it sort of stumbles along a little bit. There's not necessarily a, a, a focused policy shop to make that happen. But, um, but these connections continue growing. We do see more Chinese products and more economic connections in Africa until finally in about year, well, until the year 2000, when um, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation is founded. And this really becomes this keystone sort of institution through which China can really engage economically with Africa. And at this point, with, um, at this point, really, the economic factors really become sort of the dominant pathway through which China is actually engaging with Africa. And that's continued to grow to this day, um, especially as the Chinese economy is growing, as it's looking for more places to invest, as it's looking for more places for, say, its infrastructure firms to find contracts and things like that, or its construction firms and the like. Um, FOCAC, F-O-C-I-C, the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, has just continued to grow in importance. And, and I'm certain we'll discuss shortly uh, uh, sort of where that's left us now. And so sort of reiterate and give a summation of the answer. The strategic interest first grew out of Chinese isolation. But now as China has both become a larger player in global affairs, and as its economy has grown, now it's shifted to less of a diplomatic function and much more of an economic one, both as sources for materials and uh, markets for products and services. Great. Thank you for that detailed answer. <laughs> so my next question is, as an African military historian, can you explain what types of military engagement or support that China has provided to various African nations? Which country or countries received the most support? Well, this is a, again, I'll try to give as detailed of an answer as I can without putting our listeners to sleep. Um, so as I had mentioned, whenever these Chinese political overtures begin, it's in the midst of the Cold War. And um, the Cold War in Africa isn't just a matter of sort of peaceful decolonization of Britain, essentially on October 1st, 1960, saying, okay, Nigeria, you're running yourself now. Um, there are numerous well, colonial actors or, or settler colonies such as Rhodesia, such as South Africa, that um, don't want to release essentially their hold, that don't want majority rule in their territories. Most of the African states look at this and essentially say, well, no, African rule for Africa. The Portuguese Empire, which is still in uh, Cabo Verde and Guinea-Bissau, in Angola and Mozambique claim, oh no, this isn't, these aren't colonies, this isn't an empire, these are overseas provinces of Portugal, and they refuse to let go. 
the small white Rhodesian minority refuses to allow black African political participation to any meaningful degree. In South Africa, beginning in 1948, apartheid has kicked up. And, and so there's really no black, black African political power at all. And then Namibia is actually still occupied by South Africa following um, World War One, and they, they refuse to give them any sort of meaningful self-determination as well. And so what this creates is what are referred to as, as the liberation struggles, where um, both nationalist groups from these, uh, from these um, territories that, that want to have self-rule essentially organize themselves politically and eventually militarily to carry on a protracted guerrilla struggle. And other African nations jump in to try to help out with this. For example, Tanzania, who you had mentioned, I'm, I'm working on a book on their military, um, actually ends up hosting a series of what they refer to as, as liberation camps, where these various liberation fronts, whether it's um, Conte Wesizwe, who is the, um, the military arm of the African National Congress from South Africa, whether it's SWAPO, the Southwestern African, Southwest Africa People's Organization, whether it is Frelimo, uh, I, I won't try to pronounce what that is in Portuguese, but it is the Mozambique Liberation Front. The military portions of these, of these organizations all effectively are trained in camps in Tanzania. But to both build their military, because Tanzania needed to rebuild their military in an independent fashion in 1964, um, but then also to try to train these groups, they needed, they needed military help. And so what China effectively did was offer initially trainers. Um, there were seven in Tanzania, specifically for the Tanzania People's Defense Force initially. Um, but then numerous others are sent to the various liberation camps, usually not massive numbers, not, not hundreds to each camp, but to go and teach thing, basic things like field craft, maintaining weapons, guerrilla warfare, and kind of the larger theories and practices of that. And so Chinese trainers become very, very important in the generation of military force for these conflicts. Beyond that, at least for the guerrilla fronts, they provide a very, very large amount of small arms. I mean, most guerrilla fronts don't need things like, you know, jet fighters or, or tanks or the like, but they do need things like, you know, rifles. They need pistols. They need grenades. They need landmines. And China provides a very large amount of these and the ammunition for for all those small arms as well and then even for, uh, and then even for state actors in in Zambia in Tanzania in uh, factions in the horn China actually does provide a good amount also of heavier weaponry the nascent Tanzanian military effectively is 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 armed with artillery and armor and eventually, jet fighters mostly through Chinese aid as well as um their actual the, the the original seed of their navy is two Chinese patrol boats that are donated uh, and the Chinese actually end up building both their military academy and their military port facilities and so China really engages never in a direct conflict but is what we would refer to as capacity building. And it's one of the few powers really engaging in that, in, in a struggle that's really close to the hearts of most African nations. They want South Africa to have self-determination. They want Namibia to be able to make its own choices. They want the Portuguese out of Angola and Mozambique. And so China's one of the few countries that would step up and actually offer them both the training and the arms to do so. Now, with the impacts on that, this ends up actually being fairly critical. Although the, the conflict in Angola becomes much more complex, 
whether we're talking about Rhodesia, which effectively comes Zimbabwe under uh, under Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe African National Union, they're almost entirely trained and armed by the Chinese. The Tanzanians, as I mentioned, most of their weapons and a, and a good chunk of their expertise come from the Chinese. And in fact, something that I didn't mention a little bit earlier, but a good chunk of the officers, even of these independent nations and liberation fronts, are going to China and doing essentially their professional military education in China with the communists and coming back. Now, this causes some Cold War confusion where people are like, oh, well, they must be communists. Not necessarily. They're taking help where help is offered. But ultimately, for most of the African continent, this has a lot of resonance most of the leadership of of Africa of even the independent African states are what they refer to as pan-Africanists. They believe in a sort of singular African experience, although there's some discussion and debate within that. And as mentioned, they all want what they see as these colonies gone. And the first person to step up, or the first country to step up and offer significant aid is China. And so, and even worse to a degree, if we're speaking mostly to an American audience, Due to the currents of the Cold War, the United States actually ends up supporting apartheid South Africa and ends up supporting, at least in terms of arms and the like, the Portuguese Empire. And so the impacts that effectively happen here is even once Africa sort of formally finishes these last steps of decolonization, which we could look at in, say, 1994 with the election of Nelson Mandela in free and open elections in South Africa, the histories that are there is... China has engaged militarily. They have put their money where their mouth is, and they have shown up and they have helped. And that that carries a lot of weight for a lot of these countries, because militarily they were there when a lot of other states simply were not. Well, very well. (laughs) So, Dr. Thomas, recently, in 2017, China constructed its first and only overseas military base in Djibouti. What can you tell us about Chinese intentions with this development? Do we expect a trend that China will seek to expand their military presence in Africa with additional bases? Ah, well, see, this is an interesting question, and I can I can offer some 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 hard information and some interpretation of that. And with this, so that with the completion of this base, um, it had begun actually a little bit earlier, and this this was largely when hopefully our listeners remember in about. 2010, 2012, suddenly sort of the issue of Somali piracy sort of jumped to the fore. Wired Magazine actually did a little um, flash video game where you could play as a Somali pirate, that sort of thing, right? And it becomes this sort of, this, this very focused cause. Well, the thing is, is China is in Africa for economic reasons, and piracy is, you know, hurts those. And specifically, the, the issues in the horn... Yes, there's certainly issues within the Horn, but especially, say, a naval base, which this one, uh, this one that was completed really is focused as, that's much more about this strategic situation of, of controlling or safeguarding the economic um, flow through the Bab al-Mandeb, the Red Sea, and then up through the Suez Canal and back. A massive amount of the global trade actually runs through this this one region of the world. Um, for those listening, if you recall, when the uh, the recent ship was jammed in the Suez Canal and how badly that was billions of dollars, um, I think they said every hour effectively um, lost. And so with China becoming increasingly a global trader, 
they wanted a way to safeguard effectively one of the few choke points. This is it's a little bit easier for them to, to project force into the other major one, which is uh, the Straits of Malacca, right by Singapore. Um, their own naval bases can sort of allow there to be force projection to, to safeguard that. But then when you look at, say, the Suez or Red Sea, they needed a space where they could refuel, where they could effectively have a base of operations to keep this open. And so this, although there was some overheated rhetoric about China's invading Africa sort of thing, and this is the first big step, this really continues this pattern of military operations supporting or and military institution and the military institutions of China supporting the the major thrust at the time, whether it's the military helping achieve political ends, say during the Cold War, and now the military helping with economic ends. Now there is some um, speculation and concern with um, China's has a significant amount of port deals up and down um, the east coast of Africa. Um, now most of those are intended for commercial use, things like. Well, in Tanzania, there's currently sort of a back and forth as to whether they're, the Bagamoyo port deal will continue, but they're definitely helping with the Dar es Salaam port, I believe Lamu in Kenya, and several others. These are intended to continue helping the, the commercial growth of Chinese interests in Africa. Better ports with you know easier channels to get through, better loading and unloading equipment, increases the efficiency of economic activity. But you know, there, there is some concern that at some point some of these effectively larger ports could maybe be the focus of sort of a Chinese naval presence or the like. I'm not entirely convinced of it, but I'm also saying, I'm not saying that that isn't necessarily a possibility in the future. Now, interestingly enough, the um, we haven't really seen any inland bases, despite an increased Chinese peacekeeping which ground forces, People's Liberation Army forces, deployed as UN peacekeepers in, say, South Sudan, but there's no real per permanent bases built with that. The other sort of thing that's raised some eyebrows has been um, the Chinese actually just had trilateral with Russia and South Africa naval exercises off, off the Cape. And that, uh, that raised some eyebrows, especially within the U.S. community, um, who's always sort of on the lookout for Chinese military exercises, particularly in Africa, and throwing Russia into the mix, of course, caused a, a fairly large to-do. But uh, most, South, most South African observers sort of looked at that and said, well, we, they're paying for it. Mm -hmm. South Africa's military at the moment is, has been going through some, some budgetary issues as they're sort of retooling and the like, and, and well, ready, exercises are needed for readiness and if Russia and China are willing to pay for those exercises, then great, that's fantastic. And admittedly, the South African government has, at least through um, the Mbeki and Zuma era, have been fairly aligned with China um, on a number of things. And even now with the, the Ramaphosa government, um, he's continued sort of the, at least the rhetoric and much of the practice of Chinese alignment. So, Well, that's a great segue to my next question. So economically, China is often a preferred partner in Africa because of its no-strings-attached policy, which contrasts with Western policies and ideologies. What implications does this have for existing partnership on the continent, such as Japan and EU investments in Africa? Oh, and this, is, this has been a focus for quite some time. And in fact, there is a 
sort of apocryphal story that was going around of a government minister in an unnamed African country who was speaking with the U.S. ambassador. And the U.S. ambassador complained about, well, you know, there's all this Chinese road construction here, and now they're even building that dam. And with the apocryphal minister effectively saying, well, we asked the U.S. for money to build the dam and to help us build the dam. And they said, well, first you have to, you know, clean up these human rights abuses. And, we, you know, this, these people are bad people, and you're saying we're abusing them. I, I don't know what to do with that. So then we asked the EU, and they said, well, you have to hit these certain education targets, and well, that'll take years, and we don't have a lot of money to do that. We, we need a dam. And then we asked China, and they just built the dam. Now, admittedly, this is a bit of a just-so story, but it's it's been sort of a larger sort of function here, right? Now, what I would say, though, is this is largely caused, this was held initially as this, what gave China a strategic advantage, that they would engage economically, even with regimes that, that you know, and, and ask very little of a regime in, in return. And this does have pretty significant implications, because if, say, Japan or, e, or the EU effectively says, we need these structural changes before we'll invest, and China doesn't ask for those, well, it's much easier to go with that. And we've seen, in many cases, at least the promise of larger Chinese investments and, and, and larger commitments to Chinese projects due to that. As I'm certain we'll get into a little bit, there's there's the promise and then there's whether the money actually shows up, but those are two different things. Um, but with the implications, it does tend to lead to the question of if there's going to be a competition there, does there need to be, if you will, a race to the bottom? Do Japan and EU need to, or even the United States, need to drop these commitments to do so? And that's a, still a raging sort of debate in my own personal in my own personal capacity, I would say I think that would be a mistake uh, to drop those commitments, largely because most of these deals are are being made with the the elites of African, um, the African political class, mm-hmm. and part of the point here of U.S. engagement of U- of EU engagement of ja- of Japanese engagement of the like is to try to uplift more of the country. Now there's obviously the argument of which needs to come first do we you know can we see a better economic uplift through building roads no strings attached and then that will generate economic activity which will generate connection which will then help with more schools and then kind of build up these sorts of things i i'm not certain i'm convinced because we've seen enough cases where just because you build roads doesn't mean you'll later build schools Mm -hmm. and i think that this larger connection with civil society is is a much more useful one it does mean that at least in these more visible areas of, if we want to call it competition, although I'm not certain I, I would call it that, but it seems to be the, the invoked term, it does mean in these these more visible sectors, building bridges, building dams, uh, building the new AU headquarters in, in Addis Ababa, things like that, China does tend to have an advantage. But I think just because something's more visible doesn't mean it's more critical. And I don't think we should surrender some of I don't think we should surrender what will be long-term important commitments to achieve shorter-term visible goals. Okay, so what would happen to African economies if China decides to scale back investments in Africa? And we've kind of seen this with the recent COVID pandemic. Mm-hmm. And and this, is, this has actually been interesting, and it's caused at least sort of more observers to both observe and sort of opine on what this might mean for the long term. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these economies, and specifically the ones that China um, engages with, because 
just to really kind of clarify even some of our, our, our larger discussion here is, yes, there's sort of this larger focus on China and Africa. But as you mentioned at the beginning of this whole discussion, there are 54 countries in Africa and Chinese engagement is not uniform across them. In fact, the top 10 countries um, in terms of sort of dollar engagement eat up about 70% of Chinese investment. And these tend to be ones that are producing things like rare earth minerals, gold, and other sorts of much harder to find sort of commodities. Um, oil and gas is huge. This is part of the reason that, say, for example, Angola and Democratic Republic of the Congo are, are targets of engagement, that sort of thing. And so the thing is, is admittedly, with Chinese investments scaling back, I'm not certain necessarily, I mean, it will slow the economies in these countries, but there's always a market for petroleum, at least until renewals renewables overtake them. There's always going to be you know, a market for cobalt and coltan and gold. It simply means that some of these efforts to make these markets more efficient through better infrastructure or the like aren't necessarily going to you know, be achieved in as short of time. Now, admittedly, there are countries that are largely agrarian or that maybe China is um, engaging with for more sort of regional strategic reasons, such as, um, you know, Ethiopia or the like, that probably will hurt a little bit more from this, but it'll be a slowing of the economy, not necessarily a cratering one, I would imagine. So politi politically, mm -hmm. is the Chinese presence and investments on the continent generating pro-China policies from African states? I would say yes to a degree. I mean, you have, I, I'd mentioned South Africa, which has been a, admittedly a strong focus of, of Chinese engagement. And they, at least underneath the Mbeki and now Zuma administrations, have been very pro-China and very vocally so. And even um, President Ramaphosa, who's a little bit more of a moderate, even he at least feels the need to continue um, very open pro-China rhetoric. Now, as to what we actually see in terms of policies, what we actually see is rarely a uniform engagement of, oh, China's welcome he everywhere here sort of thing. But what we tend to see instead are what we might call carve-outs or, or extraterritoriality, which is when Chinese firms are doing business in Africa, when Chinese laborers or managers are in Africa, they are not necessarily beholden to the local law mm -hmm. and in fact would need to be, if any sort of issues come up, then the, those need to be run actually through the embassy, uh, through the Chinese embassy. And so we see these generated. Now those have slowed down largely because although these were seen as maybe a necessary evil by sort of this political class, it generated a, eventually a massive amount of opposition from, from the larger kind of civil society and population of, of some of these countries. So, for example, Zambia, um, and, and for those that are really interested sort of in this particular sort of case, I'd recommend um, Howard French's China's Second Continent. It's a little bit, it's, it's a little bit older now, but I think gives a really good in-depth discussion of sort of this extraterritoriality and how it's dealt with. So Zambia, which um, is fairly famous for its copper belt, um, it's one of the, the leading sources of copper actually in the world. Um, so as significant mining interests, those have been um, Chinese firms came in, they, they received contracts to sort of mine and, and expand the mining practice there. And, and in many cases achieved or received extraterritoriality as part of this, this sort of bargain. 
Well, I, I don't think I need to tell many of your listeners this, but mining as a miner is awful. You're, you're, even with more modern techniques, you're still in an incredibly dangerous situation. You're, the labor itself is extremely hard, and part of the way that you make it profitable is you don't pay much for that labor. Um, and so the local African labor was treated very badly and, and not paid very much, and often they had to live fairly far away from their families to do that labor. Um, what that ended up leading to was a series of very, very angry protests against um, Chinese presence. But even those that had demonstrated, even those Chinese supervisors that had demonstrably broken Zambian law couldn't be prosecuted. And so there's sort of this uh, two-tier sort of thing where maybe you see these more sort of pro-China, pro-Chinese economic activity policies at the government level but they're in many cases spurring significant opposition from, from sort of the, the, the more general populace. In fact, um, for the last, I think, two election cycles in Zambia, the um, Chinese presence and, and what to do with it has been a very, very um, central topic to, to those races. Very good. So that answers my question on resistance to Chinese presence by local population. <laughs> mm-hmm. And like you mentioned at the top level, there's a lot of support, but mm-hmm. at the local level, we see a lot more resistance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned earlier in our discussion on the China-Africa Co- Cooperation Forum. Mm-hmm. And what is uh, that relationship with the African Union? Well, so China does not necessarily want to be necessarily involved in, in a, if you will, in a million or if you will, 54 bilateral relationships. It, it, it very much it will use those relationships, it builds those relationships, but FOCAC essentially became a, a clearinghouse of Africa policy where China could sort of speak to the continent as a whole at the time and in many cases also engage with larger sort of African Union level issues. And so in many cases, this has been a chance for sort of top-level government interaction between um, Chinese high-level ministers and often then the foreign ministers or heads of states of African nations, especially since 2006, which was sort of a breakthrough year. Mm -hmm. And it's also become sort of a promotional tool. That may not be the right word, but this also tends to be the place where China sort of announces or has announced in the past it's, it's yearly sort of investment goals in, in Africa. And so this gives them a chance to sort of give an aggregate sort of discussion of it where they can sort of step up and say, okay, this year we're pledging, you know, uh, you know another $2 billion in infrastructure development and we're, you know, pledging another, you know, X amount for this sort of thing. And because they're able to sort of look at it in aggregate, they're able to speak to, excuse me, if you will, the continent as a whole. And so, and this often means that they have to coordinate with the African Union. One of the major FOCAC projects and sort of Chinese development projects actually was rebuilding the African Union headquarters in Addis, as I had mentioned. Actually, there's a fairly interesting virtual reality tour you can do of that right now. And so they, they tend to try to engage both at the, the continental level, but then, you know, formally with the African Union. But then also this is their chance to speak to all the or as many states as they can get sort of attendees is there as well. I'd be very interested in the next cycle of FOCAC meetings, largely just because of this drawing back of investment, because it's, as I mentioned, 2006 becomes sort of this breakthrough year because there's sort of this dizzying amount of aid promised and they've got, 
really more higher level representatives than they've ever had before from African nations. And it's sort of seen as this breakthrough year mm-hmm. and it's continued that momentum. It'll be interesting to see it in the coming years of, of how many, I'm certain that you still will have representation, but mm-hmm. it's sort of who's coming and at what level. Well, based on the information that you've provided with the vast amount of aid that China is providing to Africa, can the United States compete with China in Africa? I would say yes. And and what I would say out of this more than anything else. So first, I, I think one of the most apt things I heard actually at one of the larger sort of discussions of this, actually at an African Studies Association meeting, was um, a, a former higher level U.S. government employee specifically said, well, can we call it a competition when one side isn't trying? And so the thing is, is we've, we, we, we spend a lot of time discussing sort of China-Africa competition and U.S. competition with China and Africa, sorry, China, uh, China-Africa cooperation and then U.S. cooperation with China for that. But we honestly don't do a lot or what we do do tends to be much more sort of lower level baseline sort of things. And so, and, and we seem to rarely trumpet them. So um, PEPFAR, which was a, a George W. Bush era program that was about providing anti-retrovirals to help basically slow down, if not stop the spread of HIV and AIDS in Southern Africa, is the most wildly successful U.S. program in Africa mm-hmm. ever. But we almost never talk about it mm-hmm. and we almost never bring it up. The other thing that we tend to do is, as I had mentioned, we we tend to look at these top line and very visible sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, projects like building dams, refurbishing ports, highways, roads, AU headquarters, and we tend to define competition as that. Well, the thing is, is as we've discussed, we're not, there, there's no centralized U.S institution like the Chinese, you know, export import bank or, or, you know, we have no centralized development bank here, here in the United States to channel sort of this larger sort of state investment, which isn't to say that we don't invest. Um, USAID does a very good job with a variety of, of really fascinating and often very successful programs on the continent, but it's nothing vis- necessarily as visible as that. But this would be trying to compete with what China's strengths right now are, which is being able to direct investment put firms on the ground there, that sort of thing, um, for building these large infrastructure projects. If we're going to compete, it can't be in that. I mean, at best, we'll, you know, everyone's all drive up the cost of something. Where we need to focus on competing needs to be in the areas where our strengths are. Things like the United States education system is still first in the world. There's a reason why um, leaders, children from across the world, why more wealthy citizens from around the world still send their children to American universities. We're a beacon to the world for that. Our education system, as much as we occasionally carp about, oh, we're falling behind in math or things like that, we still are the destination for higher education. Mm -hmm. And so we should leverage that in terms of even military engagement and military education. Right now, China offers a significant, in fact, often, at least from what we've largely heard, a larger amount of slots at, say, their military education institutions than we do. But the quality is so different, at least, again, anecdotally talking with African officers. Our PME, as as much as our listeners may every once in a while somewhat wonder about this, still is a much more focused and much more effective program towards 
building, you know, creative, critically thinking officers. Um, so things like education, we can compete and fairly easily win as long as we want to put the investment in. Things like global health. Again, we have massive infrastructure and, if we're going to be honest, experience in being part of this. Um, USAID, again, the PEPFAR program, these are all areas where we're able to do this but we really haven't engaged in some of the ways that maybe we could have. For those of you that, that are listening right now, I'm certain you're aware that, at least at the time of this recording, we're in month 18 of a global pandemic. There's significant questions about why aren't we, as the United States, who has, in some cases, according to news stories, massive amounts of doses of vital vaccines against this, against this COVID-19, spoiling. And you end up with places like South Africa, which despite being an industrialized country, has vaccination rates in single digits because they don't have vaccines. Democratic Republic of the Congo, the same. Nigeria, which is uh, where approximately 20 to 25 percent of the entire population of the continent simply does not have the capacity to develop their own vaccines at the moment. Mm-hmm. The If you want a simple snap your fingers tomorrow and we can actually you know, compete with China, vaccine diplomacy is a, would be a massive and fairly easy win for us. Now, obviously, say, if you're listening to this two years from now, you may be rolling your eyes, but at least right now, it seems to be something that even African commentators and, and observers say on, again, the China-Africa project, are like, are really wondering why we haven't sort of swung into action on that sort of thing. So long story short, in things like, I mean, we're never at least right now, we do not have the institutions to compete in these bigger, flashier infrastructure projects. But in building human infrastructure, in helping with health outcomes, in in sort of building a bigger and better education system on the continent, there's still almost no one that has the capacity or ability we have. We're just not necessarily doing it right now. So where do you see areas of cooperation between Washington and Beijing in Africa? Well, some of it is is just the, I guess if we're looking at cooperation as opposed to staying out of each other's lane, like we were just talking about, I would say things as simple as maritime security. China's already active in that. We mentioned the base in Djibouti. They do have a naval squadron there that's helping patrol those waters, or at least they did. But it was not coordinating in any way with the EU squadron. It wasn't coordinating with the U.S. ships in the area. Now, they were keeping abreast, keeping each other abreast of what their activities were, so there was there was no mix-ups, accidental firing on, that sort of thing. But there could actually be cooperation on that. No one loses when we make certain that we're not duplicating effort. And honestly, that would be good both for the people of Africa and Chinese and U.S. economic outcomes. Other things really can be things as simple as, even as we mentioned, public health outcomes. You know, uh, the U.S. tends to have a better infrastructure for for building on that, um, but it doesn't mean that the U.S. and China can't cooperate with it. And then, honestly, finally, it may be things as simple as, although China is not necessarily interested in human rights outcomes, it really can be things like sort of figuring out sorting out some of the more sort of predatory predatory aspects of regimes. Mm-hmm. Largely because although China may not necessarily care about whether a regime is predatory, if it hurts the eventual economic outcomes, that's something that we can leverage sort of areas of cooperation, I would imagine. Okay, great. So I want to end on a positive note here. 
Do you have any predictions for the future of the African continent? What do you think is the best possible outcome for <laughs> Africa politically and economically, say, 50 years from now? Well, I'll preface this with saying I'm a historian, and so I, I, I'm always intrinsically uncomfortable future casting, but I'm, you, you've asked the question, and so the best possible outcome is, honestly, and I will say this for, as you mentioned, the outcomes for Africa. I'm not worried about the, the outcomes for China. I'm not worried about the outcomes for the United States. Um, would be them leveraging where effectively these two, if you want to say competitors, can both offer help and using this to, say, using the, the infrastructure and the increased economic activity to build, say, a bigger tax base, then use that to build their own infrastructure and sort of foundations for civil society that they need. Because right now, yes, we talk about highways and, and port deals and things like that. But a good chunk of that is to, again, help with the extraction of commodities from Africa and ship them elsewhere. And that's all well and good. That helps with economic activity, but it doesn't help economic activity within the continent. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help Sudan trade with Uganda. It helps Sudan trade with China. And so in this case, it really would be trying to take the economic gains from increasing interaction with China and using those then to build the internal structures that these states need. The other piece out of it would be, you know, um, as we said, invest in, edu in education and the like, whether that's the U.S. or the states themselves, and using that to build more robust civil societies that then allow for more things like democratic participation, accountability, human rights, that sort of thing. And so in 50 years, what I'm hoping for, although it will, it is not, it is by no means a sure path, and, and by there are certainly those whose, whose interests would be against this, would be the, the youth bulge comes and goes. For those that are, um, uh, are not familiar listening to this right now, actually I believe a plurality of the population of Africa is under the age of 18, if not a majority, which means in the coming years the a huge amount of the citizens of the continent will be youth, uh, youths. And that's a challenge, because as we've seen in some of our own recent military engagements, young men and young women that don't necessarily have feel involved in a political process and who don't necessarily have jobs can be significant security issues um as i certainly don't blame some of them for being um and so the the hope in 50 years would be the current economic activity is able to build a greater domestic pol uh, political and economic activity that can accommodate these uh, this population and eventually these can really develop into the states that a lot of sort of visionary leaders like Julius Nyerere, like Kwame Nkrumah, and the like imagined in, in the 1960s, where you've got an educated, economically and politically active population that really is sort of steering the ship themselves and becoming sort of their own actors in a regional and maybe even global stage. Best case scenario, and uh, I, I really am hoping it, it can be true, but a lot of things can go wrong there. Well, Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an insightful conversation, and it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Oh, no, this was wonderful. Thank you for having me. And for those listening, hopefully this has been insightful. And uh, if not, then uh, hopefully you follow through to one of the recommended venues and, and find something that tickles your fancy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indo-Pacific Affairs. We hope you enjoyed the interview. 
Please help us by leaving your comments in the Discuss section in this page or on our Twitter feed at journal underscore Indo. You can also interact with us on the Journal of Indo-Pacific Affairs Facebook and LinkedIn sites.